0: Hello, friends of the Vault. A quick note, I am still working on my series from the frozen north, which should be out as soon as I can finish reading my freshly declassified documents from the DTIC, the Defense Technical Information Center. I wanted to thank you all for liking Facebook and subscribing on iTunes. The Vault is just a few clicks away from 1,000 Facebook likes, which is actually quite a lot for a lonely professor... Hold up in a fallout shelter. And don't stop liking, let's get to a thousand, or a thousand and ten, even. So, on with the show. Here's a loose review of my favorite Cold War and fear-mongering headlines from my strange list of news sources for this week, Monday, May 6th, 2019. You now officially find yourself in the Cold War Vault. Personally, not professionally, my favorite fear-mongering rag is The Express from the UK. The newspaper has a reputation for lying outright all the way back to its founding in 1900. And yet when it comes to Cold War and New Cold War stories, they're strangely truthful, if not entirely accurate. Maybe that's because things in politics and policy and 21st century political personas are so intrinsically insane that they don't need to make up headlines. Maybe they don't even need to make sense. For some reason, a uniquely unnecessary look at Cold War-era Britain came out just before the weekend and found its way to my inbox. The headline is... World War III Warning, Why Britons Were Told to Stock Up on Tinned Foods Amid Nuclear Fears. Well, without reading that, I have a pretty good theory as to why you would stock up on tinned foods, but let's read it anyway. The article is rooted in the Protect and Survive pamphlet and television broadcast series that was designed to be issued in advance of a nuclear attack. Protect and Survive is a scary compilation of information mixed with a little misinformation and a lot of haunting synthesizer music. Here, have a listen. It's the magic of the medium. <laughs> The Express article attributes this culturally tone-deaf information campaign to Margaret Thatcher's administration. But that isn't true. It was culturally tone-deaf even before that, when it first came out in 1938 as The Protection of Your Home Against Air Raids. And it was really uselessly out of touch when it came out in 1963 as a thick book called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack. That incarnation made an appearance in Peter Watkins' 1965 docudrama, The War Game. When the filmmaker asks a civil defense warden issuing the rather thick brochure called Your Protection Against Nuclear Attack, why it hadn't been issued before the last days before the imminent nuclear war, the warden answers that it had been produced some years ago but hadn't sold very well. It cost nine pence. In reality, the production of the booklet was planned to start on strategic warning, which was always a sort of gamble, knowing two or three weeks before war was coming. The same was the case with Protect and Survive. It was meant to be distributed in paper form and start broadcast on television after strategic warning, maybe just a few days before the war. Maybe, if everything went to plan. In general, the Protect and Survive campaign told people to stock up on a variety of canned foods that would last about two weeks, and this was because the remainder of the advice explained that two weeks in shelter was the bare minimum required to avoid the radiation hazards that would follow a nuclear exchange. It also told you what to do with your dead grandmother. If anyone dies while you are kept in your fallout room, move the body to another room in the house. Label the body with name and address and cover it as tightly as possible in polythene, paper, sheets or blankets. Tie a second card to the covering. The radio will advise you what to do about taking the body away for burial. If, however, you have had a body in the house for more than five days, And, if it is safe to go outside, then you should bury the body for the time being in a trench or cover it with earth and mark the spot of the burial. Why is this a subject of a tabloid article on an average day in May in 2019? Unknown. Or is it? No, it is unknown. But thank you, Express. Keep up the fear-mongering. I love you for it. Lacking any justification for transitioning into the next story with the line, speaking of tiny missiles, I'll just go ahead and say that over the weekend, Kim Jong-un oversaw the launch of a barrage of projectile types into the Sea of Japan. Early Saturday morning in the Korean peninsula, North Korea launched what it called a new type of tactical guided weapon. The North didn't elaborate on what it was, but the fact that it wasn't picked up on South Korean radar, or maybe it was picked up and lost, which they would never admit but which seems more likely, hinted that it wasn't a ballistic missile. It was speculated that it was probably some kind of very short-range cruise missile. Some commentators likened it to the Israeli Spike, which has a maximum range of 25 kilometers, and some speculated that it was closer to the Russian Iskander that is said to be able to fly 500 kilometers and destroy naval forces. As the day went on, it was clear that it was somewhere in between with a likely range of between 70 and 240 kilometers. North Korea also launched 240 millimeter and 300 millimeter rockets, which make fantastic propaganda pictures. Most commentators agree that the purpose of the not entirely unusual show was to shake its fist at the U.S. and President Trump in particular in advance of a potential new attempt at a nuclear deal. Trump who was clearly rattled on Saturday morning, tweeted, Anything in this very interesting world is possible. Upon rereading, the unrattled Trump went on to write, I believe that Kim Jong-un fully realizes the great economic potential of North Korea and will do nothing to interfere or end it. He also knows that I am with him and does not want to break his promise to me. Deal will happen." Unfortunately, as North Korea's new, bought, or stolen weapons landed unrecoverably in the Sea of Japan and its great economic potential, has been in a holding pattern since the Korean War, this weekend's saber-rattling news masked another set of stories out of the peninsula last week. As of now, as in this week, 40% of the population of North Korea needs food. That's 10.1 million people who are what the UN World Food Program calls food insecure. And what that means is, they will run out of food by next harvest. The government has reduced individual food rations to 300 grams per person per day. Grams of what? Well, rice with a little kimchi. I don't want to overstate this. The usual ration is 500 grams per person per day, but this feels different. The reduction is coming early, and the crop failure was too big. So it feels like the start of some of the other cycles of famine the country has seen, including the arduous march of the 1990s, during which it is said that about three million people starved to death. This time around, there has been a particularly weak harvest and then a drought and then a flood. And of course the sanctions, which do have real practical effects, intended and unintended. Think of agricultural equipment repair or fuel. But what to make of it? Well, very hungry people and armies might not win wars, but they will absolutely fight them because they have nothing left to lose. And sometimes those very hungry people and those very hungry armies drive the Germans out of Stalingrad. So I wonder how messy this could get. Stay tuned. How about something from a happier file? Let's talk about shrimp. Well, I might say shrimp a couple of times, but I actually mean the shrimp-like amphipod family. A paper just published in the Journal of Geophysical Research Letters says that researchers have found carbon-14, the radioactive isotope of carbon, in the tiny bodies of crustaceans swimming at the bottom of the Mariana Trench. In fact, the same thing was found in these animals in all of the deepest parts of the western Pacific, and those are the deepest parts of the planet. So what makes this interesting from a Cold War perspective? It's that carbon-14, found down there, miles and miles down into the dark, is from the era of atmospheric nuclear testing. Wait a second, I hear you well-educated audience say, how can you be sure? Well, let me tell you a story about some things you might not know. We will start with carbon. Almost all of the carbon on Earth is the isotope carbon-12, 99% or so. Then there's some carbon-13 in the remainder. Carbon-14 can be found in very small amounts, trace amounts. Let's call that one part per trillion. The amount is so small because it tends to break down over time. And that's radioactive decay. And its half-life is about 5,730 years, plus or minus 40 years. But we don't need to understand the ins and outs of the physics. To understand, that provides a fairly accurate clock. That's how radiocarbon dating works. Carbon-14 ends up in the food chain along with the other carbon, and so all living materials on Earth wind up absorbing a ticking clock in the form of carbon-14. That absorption stops when the living material dies, so in the process of radiocarbon dating, you can measure how long something has been dead by how much carbon-14 it has left. That's very clever. But as with so many things, the Cold War put a wrench in the works. The amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere used to be steady until something called the bomb pulse, which I think is just a great dramatic name. The bomb pulse refers to a sudden surge or pulse of carbon-14 in the biosphere caused by global atmospheric nuclear testing. It started in 1945 with the trio of bombs that year and ramped up wildly after that. It hit its peak sometime in October of 1963 when almost all atmospheric testing was abandoned. Since then, the extra carbon-14 has been decreasing at a regular interval of a little more than 1% per year. This has created a new kind of clock so that any amount of carbon-14 found above and beyond the base level before 1945 can be associated fairly accurately with a year on the chart. When the slope on the chart was steep, accuracy was really high, around one specific year. Since the turn of the millennium, as the slope has evened out, accuracy has decreased to plus or minus two years. And it will continue to decrease until the technique becomes functionally useless and we return to pre-atomic levels of carbon-14. But what does that have to do with shrimp, you say? Well, the study that got me started on this little scientific history digression found a few things. Using traps 36,000 feet underwater, researchers pulled up the animals in question. They were analyzed for carbon-14 and it was discovered that the levels matched the chart for about 2004 to 2007. That means that they were really old for these kinds of amphipods. Their cousins near the surface only live for about two years, so that's a really interesting way to use the forensics to find out how old a shrimp is. But there's something even more important. About two miles below the ocean's surface, the elevated carbon-14 quantities drop off. So two miles down, things are as pristine as 1945. But at the bottom, six, almost seven miles down, the levels are the same as the surface. And that means that the bomb-pulse carbon has reached the farthest known extents of the biosphere. The bomb pulse carbon is everywhere. All of that's very interesting for scientists of all stripes, but my last point there actually goes a little deeper. The pun is intended. And it becomes a little more personal too. Personal for all of us. Because everyone who has lived since 1945, and that's literally 100% of everyone alive on Earth, And every tree and every living thing has atoms of carbon in their bodies that were born in a nuclear mushroom cloud. That's you and me and everyone yet to be born until about 2040, when the bomb pulse will finally fade into the background. If we're lucky, anyway. Those were just a few of the interesting news bites that came across my radar this last week. I hope I offered a little extra context to each of them. This episode was written by me. I'm the only one here. Come visit Facebook and like the page. Like and subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I know I post them on the show notes pages, but subscribing on iTunes means a lot more to the supercomputers taking over Skynet. Come to ColdWarVault.com, especially this week, to see some images and links I referred to in the show. You can send any comments or requests there also. Thank you for supporting the Vault. Until next time.